The Keeping the River podcast series presented by Queen City Nerve, powered by Orthur Carolina, and hosted by yours truly, Dr. Keith Cradle, founder of Camping with Cradle. Throughout the next three episodes in this series, we aim to inform listeners about how the Catawba River affects life in the Charlotte area and beyond, and the role of the Catawba Riverkeeper Foundation in ensuring those effects are as positive as possible. We will examine the history and the impact of the Catawba River and the people who have settled it, while highlighting the work of the Catawba Riverkeeper. We will share ways that you can be active on and get involved with the largest source of water in the Carolinas. But everything has to start somewhere. So for this first episode, we want to give you some context, take a look at the long history of the Catawba and how it drove settlement and development in the region. From the first native settlers to the Catawba's role in historic events to the recent coal ash cleanups, in this episode, we're going to run through 10,000 years. So buckle up, 10,000 years of history that led us to where we are today. So for this first part, we're gonna get into geography and native history. The Catawba Watery River is named for the tribe that first settled its banks and lived in its basin for more than 10,000 years. It remains a life source for the millions of people living near the more than 200 miles of river that stretch through the Carolinas and the 3,000 miles of streams that branch out from its base. The river is 225 miles and flows through 26 counties in North and South Carolina. The Catawba River begins in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Western North Carolina, flows through the Charlotte metropolitan area along the western borders of Charlotte city limits into Lake Watery in South Carolina. The name changes to the Watery River and Lake Watery and eventually joins with the Congaree and Lake Marion. Try saying that three times. During the course of gathering information for this series, we spoke to the Leslin George Warren with the Catawba Nation on the history of the tribe settlement in the river basin. He likes to go by Rue. The Catawba tribe was already an advanced civilization when early explorers discovered the site. The group depended on the fish in the river for sustenance and food sovereignty. The river also provided the clay that allowed the Catawba to become master potters. Pottery is our longest unbroken tradition. It's the thing that we've never stopped doing. Um, it's, you know, we, we protect it really fiercely. We don't teach people outside the community how to do um, Catawba pottery. And the clay from it comes from the river. And so, um, uh, not necessarily like getting into the river to eat the clay, but it's, it's from the river piling up that clay and us going and harvesting it. Um, so that's one way. A few years ago, we also did a, um, we did a food sovereignty survey of our tribal community. And of the respondents, you know, a number of them um, said they are trying to grow food or get food from other people's gardens. And that's kind of where I'm focused in my food sovereignty work is on plants. But what I wasn't expecting was that um, almost everyone that responded said that they get some percentage of their protein uh, um, from fishing and hunting every year. So, Rue, how would you break down the timeline of settlement of the Catawba Nation in the area? We have um, pieces of cultural patrimony that... Um, have been here since 6,000 to 10,000 years. Um, we've lived along the Catawba River and surrounding rivers um, that whole time. Um, this spot that we're in right now, um, this Catawba Reservation, this is something that happened during um, the 1700s as settlers continued to move into Catawba land. And for those of us that don't know, can you talk about the alignment and how does the history of the Catawba Nation align 
with the Catawba River? And do you see the river as sort of a temple or a spiritual center? In our language, we call ourselves the Iswanre, which is the people of the river, because, um, you know, even though archaeologists say that this is how long we've been here, um, we probably say that we've been here since the world began. Um, our creation stories circle around the river. And, um, you know, sometimes that can seem like kind of, I don't know, like frou-frou to, to say that we've been here since the world began. But in a real sense, it is since our world began, right? Like everything that we are as Catawba people is based on our relationship with the river. So our fishing traditions, our hunting traditions, um, and then also this ongoing sense of responsibility to the river because the river has fed us um, and kept us alive. And so we have to also take care of it. Um, and, th and that sense continues to this day. Um, every year we have our Yapien Eswa Festival, the Day of the River People Festival, um, right here at the Cultural Center where we have um, drumming, dancing, community, food, um, lots of beautiful art that people are selling. Um, and in that time, our ancestors, I'm sure, made mistakes about how to manage the land and learn from those. And so we as a nation, as a Catawba nation, get the benefit of all that knowledge over time. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like necessarily a, a church uh, a session or something that we have, um, but rather this deep connection. Like when I walk around on the land, um, I'm just filled with gratitude to think that I get to still walk on the same land that my ancestors walked on, that my grandfather was able to walk on when he was my age. Um, and particularly in the context of the United States, that's not necessarily true for a lot of Southeastern tribes. During colonial times, the Catawba Nation maintained a good relationship with the English colonists. They not only fought other Native Americans for the English colonists, but also protected them from the encroachment of French and Spanish. They also helped the British to hunt runaway slaves. Located near Rock Hill, South Carolina, Nation's Ford was one of the series of natural fords on the Catawba River that provided safe crossing points for Native Americans. That path was vital for the Catawba Indian Nation, especially for trade and communication with northern tribes. The path later became an important trading path for manufactured goods such as guns, powder, kettles, and fabrics. So in the mid-1700s, um, Catawba Nation signed uh, two treaties with the, the Crown and the colonies, um, securing 144,000 square acres. And that is almost all of um, Fort Mill, Rock Hill, parts of Lancaster, you know, that whole thing. In fact, if you look at the border between North Carolina and South Carolina, it follows a straight line, and then it kind of follows the Catawba River down just a little bit, and then there's a right angle. Um, that right angle is the northern border of Catawba Treaty lands. And that's actually why that's there, is because when these were being negotiated, the North Carolina colony did not want um, Catawba Treaty lands within their state boundaries, within their colonial boundaries. Um, so that's kind of an interesting fact if you ever look at those maps and wonder, like, why is that weird shape there? It's because of um, the treaties with Catawba Nation. But in that time, um, we have this treaty, and in this treaty, uh, we guaranteed to, to um, share the land outside of those acreage with uh, the settlers. And in return, the colonies um, promised to keep uh, their citizens out of uh, Catawba land unless Catawba Nation allows it. So um, Catawba Nation starts um, doing land leases and um, basically renting the land to settlers. But as more and more settlers started to do that, some would start coming on, never asking for permission and just kind of settle down. Um, others would stop paying their, their fees to Catawba Nation. And by this time, Catawba Nation is probably less than 100 people. And so we didn't have 
Um, we didn't necessarily have the power to enforce those rules, um, particularly if the colony of South Carolina wasn't willing to uphold it. And in fact, if we did try and remove people, we see this across Indian country, the response would usually be uh, militias or armed forces responding to Catawbas and, um, you know, for, or tribes and further suppressing them. So in the 1790s, things are looking pretty bad for Catawba Nation. Um, when George Washington came through, he stopped in Lancaster in 1792, and Catawbas went out to meet him and said, hey, we fought with you since the French and Indian War. You know, George Washington even notes one time, you know, how sad he was about the death of two Catawbas uh, in the French and Indian War. Um, the Catawbas were the only ones that fought on the side of the revolutionaries from the beginning to the end of the war. So let's get into the war and the impact on the Catawba. The Catawba also played an important role in historic events such as the American Revolution. Following an American victory in the Battle of Kings Mountain, which led to Lord Cornwallis's famous Hornet's Nest of Rebellion quote, the commander of British forces retreated from Charlotte, attempting to take Nations Ford for a quick escape. His forces, however, were held up for days due to flooding at the Ford, giving American forces more time to prepare for what would become another crucial victory in the Battle of Cowpens. The Battle of Cowan's Ford, considered a loss for the Continental Army, despite a higher ratio of deaths on the British side, led to the death of General William L. Davidson, for which the town is named. It is the last battle with a foreign invader on Mecklenburg soil. Some argue that the strategic use of the river led to the surrender of the British Army at Yorktown, Virginia, which occurred just months after the Battle of Cowan's Ford. After the Revolutionary War, many farms and towns were established in the Catawba Valley. Later, the region had its first discovery of gold in the early 1800s, which also brought more settlers. And then the first railroad passed over the river in the 1850s. However, that's also when the Catawba Indian Nation lost control of most of their lands. We spoke with Rusty Roselle, a historian of sorts that works for Mecklenburg County as the Water Quality Programs Manager for the past 42 years. His family has lived on the river for hundreds of years and is the namesake of Rosal's Ferry. Rusty, what are some of the more fascinating things you've learned through your experience and heritage of the Catawba River? I think the most fascinating thing to me is how different it was back then. Because um, we all know technology is really advanced, but a lot of us I don't think really understand how much. For example, it wasn't until about 100, 150 years ago that we really mastered the use of steel and iron. So what has that got anything to do with the Catawba River? I understand that question, but so imagine this, um, bridges. Bridges up until probably the 1900s were all made of wood. We didn't have an NCDOT back in the 1800s. So all the roads and all the bridges were privately made and maintained. And that's just a weird concept in and of itself. So, for example, the, the first bridge that I'm aware of that crossed the Catawba in Mecklenburg County, going from east to west or west to east, uh, was the one that was built where the Roselle Ferry was. And that, the Roselle Ferry, was where Brookshire Boulevard crosses Mountain Island Lake today, or Highway 16, going between Mecklenburg and Gadsden County. So the ferry operated there beginning in 1790. And 
it operated up until the 1840s when a company here in Charlotte called the Western Plank Road Company came to my great-great-great-grandfather, that man right there, and offered him up a deal. Because my great-great-great-grandfather ran the ferry, and he charged a toll. And the Western Plank Road Company said, if you will shut down your ferry, uh, I will build a bridge, and you can use my bridge free of charge, because he farmed both banks of the river. So he was constantly hauling stuff back and forth in his ferry. And, you know, my grandfather thought that was a good deal for him, so he shut down his ferry, and they built a bridge, the Western Plank Road Company. And it was made out of planks, wooden planks. It was very expensive, and the ferry shut down. It was one of the first bridges ever built. So what what's steel got to do with it? Because we didn't know how to build bridges out of steel, and because wood, constructing stuff out of wood was so expensive, not many people built bridges. You, I mean, who's going to invest that much money in a wooden structure over a river that floods and could rot and fall in and all that other stuff? That's no, not going to do it. Uh, so up really until the middle part of the 1800s, there weren't that many bridges across the Catawba, which is kind of hard to imagine. So, so how did you cross that, you know, river? And you had to use a ford or a ferry. And in Mecklenburg County alone, which is almost mind-boggling, there were a dozen ferries operating, a dozen ferries operating along our county border, which is a long border. So there was Allison Ferry, there was Rozell Ferry, there was Walker Ferry, and we had two primary Fords. One was Beatty Ford, which is up there where Beatty's Ford Road. Right now it dead ends into Lake Norman. Well, that used to be a Ford, and that, that was just a shallow spot in the river where people could cross pulling their wagons. And then there was the Ford, Tuckasegee Ford, which is down there to Whitewater Center. So everybody knew where the Fords were, so you'd either use a Ford or you'd pay a toll and use a ferry. So if you were traveling east to west coming to Charlotte in the 1800s, or particularly the early 1800s, that's what you would do. And those ferries operated up until the 1900s. By the time of the Civil War, Charlotte had become a major rail hub, leading the Confederate Army to move its naval ordinance to the city from Norfolk, Virginia. Up to then, the Catawba Valley had been considered relatively safe from attack, but due to Nation Ford's placement as one of the longest spans on the railroad line between Georgia and Virginia, it was a ripe target for the Union Army. The rail bridge over Nation Ford was destroyed in an action on April 19, 1865, depriving the Confederacy of a vital link in its supply chain. A few days later, Confederate President Jefferson Davis crossed the river there on his retreat southwest and Sherman's 14th Corps would follow the same route shortly before the end of the war. The bridge that was built there at, uh, that, that my grandfather agreed to shut the ferry down for, uh, that bridge was burned by Union troops during the Civil War and was shut down. It was, it was Wheeler's Cavalry, which was a detachment of Sherman's army down in Georgia. Sherman, sent Wheeler's Cavalry north to disrupt transportation routes. And one of the things they did is they burned a lot of bridges and they burned that bridge. So my grandfather reopened the ferry and the ferry operated all the way up until 
1910. So, you know, that was from 1865 to 1910. So that's what, 55 years, no bridge was there. And then the bridge that was built in 1910 washed out in the 1916 flood on the Catawba, which is a huge historic landmark. Uh, the ferry reopened in 1916 and it operated until 1923 when the bridge, was, there was a steel bridge, the first steel bridge built there in 1923 that stayed in operation up until the 1960s when the bridge is there, one of the two bridges that is there now was built. After the Civil War, the region grew tremendously as it developed its textile manufacturing industry. By the end of the 19th century, people started to recognize the potential of the river, and James B. Duke, the founder of Southern Power Company, the precursor to Duke Energy, acquired the rights to build dams along the Catawba. Thus, Lake Wiley was built in 1904, becoming the first major lake to be established on the main stem of the Catawba River as a result of the establishment of a dam in Fort Mill, South Carolina, that hoped to encourage industrial development. Now let's get ready to talk about coal ash and the contemporary Catawba. Over the 20th century, Duke Energy built 14 coal-fired plants in North Carolina, many of which were along the Catawba River. These plants used coal to heat water, then convert the resulting steam into electricity. After the coal is burned, coal ash is left behind. Coal ash contains toxic heavy metals including arsenic, boron, lead, mercury, selenium, and chromium many of which are known carcinogens. For decades, it was stored in open, unlined water pits. The toxic chemicals in the coal ash can seep into the groundwater and spill into lakes and rivers, in some cases compromising drinking water along the river basin. In June 2009, the EPA released a list of 44 high-hazard coal ash impoundments across the country, four of which were located in three Duke Energy sites in the Charlotte area. Three years later, the Catawba Riverkeeper began testing samples of coal ash at Riverbend Steam Station in Mountain Island Lake and Allen Steam Station in Lake Wiley. In 2013, the Catawba Riverkeeper Foundation, or CRF for short, along with other waterkeeper organizations across the state, filed litigation against Duke Energy, eventually driving the North Carolina Department of Environmental Equality to initiate action against all 14 sites, which were unlined leaking and creating documented groundwater contamination. For nearly eight years, the Catawba Riverkeeper Foundation led the charge in state and federal court to ensure those responsible cleaned up the unlined coal ash pits along the Catawba River and three of her major lakes. In 2019, the Catawba Riverkeeper Foundation agreed to a settlement with Duke Energy that directs Duke to clean up and excavate the remaining six coal ash sites in North Carolina, including two in the Catawba Basin the Marshall site on Lake Norman, and the Allen site on Lake Wiley. The Duke Energy 14-site coal ash cleanup is the largest environmental cleanup in the United States history. When the work is complete, crews will have excavated nearly 100 million tons of coal ash and contaminated soil, enough to fill nearly 30,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. In September 2020, Catawba Riverkeeper published the State of the River Report to provide a consolidated assessment of the river's health, create a framework for tracking changes over time, and to assimilate data from all relevant sources in a single archive. The report breaks the Catawba down into four basins, the northern, the southern fork, the central, and the southern. 
Parts of the river and surrounding land closest to Charlotte are made up of the central and southern basins, though a narrow piece of the South Fork Basin extends down to Lake Wiley. The central and southern basins score above average on the report, with central scoring a 3.3 out of 5, and southern scoring a 3.2. The South Fork Basin, from which we are just downriver, landed the lowest score, and the only one below 3, with a 2.8. Based on the report, the CRF's largest priorities moving forward will be controlling runoff from changes in land use, permitted liquid waste discharges, and unregulated industrial animal waste, as well as monitoring for fecal contamination. The Catawba Riverkeeper Foundation also works with the Tribal Historic Preservation Office of the Catawba Nation in maintaining the land. Yeah, we've worked with Catawba Riverkeepers, I believe, since they were they're founded. Um, our primary contact has been with our Tribal Historic Preservation Office, which um, is one of the many pieces of uh, tribes and tribal sovereignty that a lot of people don't know about. So Tribal Historic Preservation Offices, any um, any project that is federally funded that involves construction, um, there has to be a review by tribes, um, the, the whichever tribe is uh, over that area, uh, to ensure that sacred sites aren't being um, messed with or destroyed. And so um, our TIPO officer has been working with them um, for a long time. It's incredible how well your organization works to keep the traditions and history of the Catawba people alive today. Is there anything else you think our listeners should know moving forward in their learning? I think I want to tackle like this myth that people have of um, like hunter-gatherers. So I remember that was what I was taught in school, you know, in the one chapter that we used to talk about Native Americans in our school systems and textbooks. And it's always hunter and gather, hunter and gather, right? And I always thought that was, uh, growing up, I thought that was funny because it kind of creates a image of Catawba's like wandering through the forest and going, oh my, a blueberry, right? And, but that's a, but it's part of a bigger narrative that indigenous people were just living off the land and were not really changing the land in any way. Um, but the reality is that Catawba's, um, lots of other tribes in the Southeast, um, tribes on the West Coast use large landscape management techniques, um, particularly controlled burns. And so when we look out at the wilderness, quote unquote, nowadays, we think of these woods that are um, thick, that are difficult to get through, that have brambles. Um, if you would come here in the 1600s, 1500s, that's not the landscape you'd see. You would see um, very mature forests um, with very tall trees that are spread out. Um, with large open grasslands in between them. And the thinking behind that is, of course, if we do that, then you have giant herds of deer and rabbit um, and birds that you can then hunt and not have to keep in a pen and take care of them. Um, and that, that sort of large scale management also was part of the river. So uh, when you're looking at aerial photos of the Catawba River, you can also see Catawba weirs in the river, which are these large stone structures that were used to try to kind of uh, channel fish into a single place so that we could um, gather them. And so, um, yeah, I just I just love telling those those facts because I think sometimes uh, we were told not the whole truth in school, and it's important to um, hear from Indigenous people about what our history actually looked like and and what our relationships were with with the world. So I want to thank Rue and Rusty for providing context for our first episode. And so in episode two of Keeping the River, we look at the history of the Catawba Riverkeeper, 
as well as what they're doing today to make the river a safer place for all residents of the basin.